Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that investigates matters to do with motoring and transport. I'm David Brown. And in this program, we have news stories, including Kia shows the world their EV9. Mazda joins a group to promote biofuels as an alternative to EVs. A new Hyundai Sonata strives to keep the midsize sedan segment alive. What do women really, really want in a vehicle? And the new Mitsubishi Triton on display at the Bangkok Motor Show. And in our features, we have a full interview with the organiser of the 75th anniversary of the first Land Rover to work on the Snowy Mountains scheme. And we interview a long-term listener to the program, Greg, who has a very rare MG. For more information, our website is in for service, but you can reach our social media posts by going to Instagram, just search for Cars Transport Culture, or our Facebook page, Overdrive City Driven Media. And we have a new service. We have a recording answering system that you can ring in and leave a message on or a comment about a program or a reflection on your transport needs and desires. In Australia, just ring the number 0280034295 or we do have some listeners to the podcast overseas. Just add the national code plus 61 in front of that. So that's plus 61 2800034295. This program was originally broadcast on the 1st of April 2023 and we began with the news. Kia has just held a worldwide internet event to reveal details of their EV9, their first three-row seat electric SUV. Key features include the all-electric vehicle has a targeted range of over 541 kilometres on a single charge, You can get 239-kilometre range with 15 minutes of charging time, but only with the ultra-fast 800-volt station. There's Level 3 autonomy via Highway Driving Pilot and getting update features over the air, anywhere, anytime. At the launch, they spoke of some other features. A total of 15 sensors, including two LiDARs, allow the EV9 to detect objects at the front back and sides of the vehicle. While the world and nearly all the media is focused on electric vehicles, Mazda has not given up on the internal combustion engine. They have just announced that they are now participating as a full member of the Research Association of Biomass Innovation for Next Generation Automobile Fuels. They haven't mentioned the derived acronym TRABINGAF, which is far quicker to say. Their approach is consistent with Mazda's multi-solution strategy. As it turns out, Mazda is not the first cab off the rank with this research association. On the 1st of July 2022, the association was established by the collaboration of Suzuki, Subaru, Daihatsu, Toyota and Unos, a Nissan model brand. Specific areas of research were identified as follows. Efficient ethanol production systems, capturing and using the byproducts of the process, oxygen and CO2, efficient operation of the overall system, including fuel utilisation, and efficient raw material crop cultivation methods. This type of research is important because the energy and the chemical pollution from producing biomass fuels has been raised in the past as a significant problem. 
While SUVs and utes are the real growth markets, Hyundai hasn't given up on sedans, nor on internal combustion engines just yet. They have announced their new Sonata midsize sedan. It's not all new, but it looks modern, with a curvy shape consistent with their brand new all-electric Ionic 6. Hyundai say that it is more than a simple facelift. It revolutionises the old Sonata's image, they say, launched in 2019, giving it a low-slung, low-front-end, fast-back roofline and future-oriented technology. For the first time in a Hyundai model, Sonata has a panoramic curved display inside that combines both 12.3-inch driver information clusters and 12.3-inch infotainment system. In Australia, there is only six different models from different brands in the sub-$60,000 midsize sedan category, and overall the segment is down 51% on sales compared to last year. The dominant player is the Toyota Camry. According to a global survey carried out by the South African Women's World Car of the Year juror, Charlene Clark, when it comes to cars, safety is the single most important feature desired by women. Practicality, performance and space are all tied in second place. Around 14,000 female motorists participated in the survey. Overdrive is not overexcited about these types of surveys for a variety of reasons. Asking people to rate their preference can be biased by people giving answers that would be acceptable to others, not ones that they might actually act on. And that's true of all genders. Asking what would you pay to have this feature can be more revealing. And women or men are a very diverse group. If you have a family or your age may represent a more interesting cohort. But there is one specific detail that is more revealing. Apparently, seating position, the higher the better, is extremely important to women. And finally, Mitsubishi is currently displaying their XRT concept of the all-new Triton pickup truck at the 44th Bangkok International Motor Show. They plan to launch it later this year. The Triton is Mitsubishi's top-selling model. It is manufactured in Thailand and exported to about 150 countries around the world. With its first full design in approximately nine years, the all-new Triton will be the sixth generation of the brand's mid-size pickup truck. Preliminary pictures have the car with a camouflage paint scheme to hide the details of the exterior design. But given every ute manufacturer is increasing the macho, testosterone fueled image of their utes, camouflage should really become one of your choice of colours. While there is no indication that Mitsubishi will do this, they do say in their press release, a concept car of the all-new Triton is characterised by a fierce expression on the front and a robust hood that continues to the side with bold, horizontal-themed styling. And that has been the news. Last week we had a news story about the 75th anniversary of the first Land Rover to start work on the Snowy Mountains hydroelectric scheme. Rogan Corbett is the president of the Kuma Car Club that run an event each year to celebrate this momentous aspect and development, I think, not only of a project, 
bit of a car here in Australia. He joins us on the line now. G'day, Rogan. G'day, David. The preparation now to go to the Snowy Mountains means carrying snow change, which you might have to suffer the imposition of turning off the entertainment system, getting out of the car to fit them in the special laybys provided on the side of a sealed road. The conditions would have been a bit tougher back then, wouldn't they? Just a quite, quite a bit tougher. No sealed roads, nowhere to turn off, and you just had to get in and do the job that had to be done. And uh, the only vehicle that could do that job was the Land Rover. And uh, that's where, it, uh, where, the, where the great name started. The vehicle was launched fairly soon just before that, before the first one came here? It was about 1948 when they came out here, and I think it was a couple of prototypes about 1947 after the war. And, uh, yeah, they just uh, grew from there. And, uh, mind you, over the years it's had quite a few uh, changes, but those original <laughs> ones, they were the ones that delivered the scheme. Did the Snowy Mountains Authority consider other vehicles? At the time, there might have been some uh, Willys Jeeps uh, available, ex-World War Two Jeeps, but I think the um, the Land Rover filled the bill with their ties to England, of course, and all that sort of stuff. It, um, it, uh, it filled the bill with, with the old Land Rover. It had a, a few shortcomings by today's standards, but in the day, quite remarkable vehicle. I remember, I feel my age, I went to the 50th anniversary down there. I think you were there. Yes, I, I was there. We've had the 40th, 50th, 60th, 70th and 75th. <laughs> <laughs> I had the honour of talking to one of the gentlemen who had worked on the site and had been given a Land Rover in which to drive around. He was out in the field. But, of course, he was just uh, considered a worker. The boss got the better model and the boss, who, of course, sat in an office, but his better model had a heater. The base model did not. That was part and parcel of really having to be very rugged and, and endure the conditions that were there at the time. Yes, exactly right. The uh, the first of the Land Rovers never had heaters in them and you had to rug up pretty well and it'll be tough. And, and they were, those people that uh, did those jobs in the mountains in all sorts of conditions. And we have some photos in our museum with you know, uh, 12-foot-high snowdrifts and things like that, and the Land Rover's been dwarfed by a snowdrift. He spoke of the concern that uh, when a big machine came out to try and get rid of the snow, you had to make sure you weren't buried underneath it or the car wasn't. Yeah, that was a pretty uh, pretty dangerous situation. <laughs> you got caught like that, that's for sure, yeah. You've got a museum there. That's for the whole Snowy Mountain Scheme? There is a Snowy uh, Mountain Scheme Museum in Adaminaby, but our museum in Coombe is about uh, motoring, all about cars. Oh. Uh, yeah, we've got cars from uh, 1902 right right up to all, all sorts of variety of cars. We carry all sorts of memorabilia. We've got a plane, a uh, facade of a service station, a 1950s diner that works. Yeah, it's got a variety of vehicles, 35 vehicles on display, and then we rotate them every few months as well. Because being up in the, what is Australian, the highlands, it's not uh, snow all the time, but certainly there are conditions that are extremely rough. That would be adventurous motoring in its early days. Oh, very, very adventurous. Some of the uh, roads, on, like they're still still there now. Some of the uh, the roads up there through the uh, through the snowy scheme were, uh, yeah, not for the faint-hearted, that's for sure. <laughs> How many Land Rovers would have the Snowy Mountains Authority taken? Uh, I think their initial order might have been something like 250. Mm. Quite a sizable order, that's that's for sure. And um, they were they were kept very very busy down here. And um, with the scheme, I mean a huge scheme, and uh, they needed every one of them. 
Yeah, 700, I think they ultimately got all together, maybe not all at the one time. It was a wonderful time, too, that where we depended on, and very happy to have, a great number of uh, specialised or, or hard-working immigrants that came to it. But, of course, they may not have driven in these conditions, let alone on the left side of the road. Yes, yeah, it was very, very uh, testing times. But they had um, driver training. The Snowy Hydro have always been very big on safety, and uh, even to this day, they're big on safety. And they, they trained. They were, they were the first uh, company, I think, in the world to introduce mandatory seatbelts. Oh, really? Yes, and they were developed here in the uh, engineering laboratories uh, in in Truma here. Yep. You're going to have a parade, undoubtedly, but and it's not just really Land Rovers that were made for the Snowy Mountains. They are examples of the, the great vehicle used in many other circumstances. Absolutely. We, uh, we have coming down here, the um, if you remember on the SPS show recently, the uh, Overlander was the uh, Oxford and the, and the Cambridge original uh, London, the Singapore uh, Land Rover. It's going to be here on display. So very early Land Rovers right up to the current ones. I think that was a young university student, was it, that one from Newcastle? That's the, that's the one. Yeah. 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 Two of those cars are going to be here, and um, along with some old Land Rover fire engines, and, yeah, all sorts of old vehicles will be here. And a few celebrities from overseas? Uh, yes, yeah, there's a couple coming out from England. There's people coming from America. Uh, yeah, they'll, they'll be here um, having a bit of a look around and seeing how we do it. Um, when we had the 70th, the, uh, the hierarchy from Land Rover were uh, out here and they're very impressed with our 70th. So hopefully we can repeat the feat. Mike Bishop from Jaguar Land Rover Classic. That's where they build and I think uh, repair, maintain and uh, build new versions, don't they? And then there's Bob Ives, the winner of the 1989 Camel Trophy Amazon Jungle event for Team UK. Yep. Yeah, there's some some, uh, really... uh, fantastic, uh, you know, it, it's great that there is such uh, recognition of the event, and it was such a time. I was never a mechanic, but I guess the best thing I could now do about putting them together is do a Lego set. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, probably about as complicated as a Lego set in that days, but it's different now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Lego has put out a special version, 2,336 pieces, I think. The other significant vehicle that arose a bit later out of this project was the Toyota Land Cruiser. Is there an equivalent passion for remembering the history of that brand? Uh, I guess there is uh, in, in different places. Yeah, they come along because they had a you know a later, later version with a few other mod cons on it and stuff like that, and it was a competitive tendering business, I suppose, in them days. So, yeah, it's, um, it, it's obviously got a following for sure. Finally, then, as I say, you have the parade, but there are there other events? Oh, yes, yeah. There's all sorts of tours around the area. Um, I mean, there's a group even going down to Delegate, and I think there's 120 going for lunch down a little town called Delegate, right down on the border. So, um, yeah, and there's uh, road trips around the, around the place. There's um, street parade. There's a big barbecue at the showground on Saturday, and, and the and the big dinner on Sunday night where the presentations show and shine of all the Land Rovers will be on the showground at Cooma on Sunday. Uh, and and of course the street parade with um, you know over 600 Land Rovers in it. How big's the Cooma Car Club? 
Uh, we've got about 250 family memberships. Um, we own our premises. We've got, a, we've got our own facilities uh, in here and functions room and stuff like that. We've, we've been very fortunate club. We've got a great, a great bunch of people that just love getting together and getting to do what needs to be done. In fact, I think I've caught you just prior to the event you were having a hill climb. Yes, yeah, this weekend we've got a two-day hill climb on um, where we've got some uh, young drivers. We do a driver training thing and um, the young ones can come and we've got our own cars, a couple of come and try days where people who don't have a car uh, can come and have a run in the hill climb. It's all professionally run and uh, proper time, electronic timing and, and proper safety procedures. It's a wonderful sense of community there. Yeah, we're involved in many things in our community around the place and uh, from, from all over the Monero, actually, yeah. It's also a lovely area, isn't it? Uh, not to go down there just for the snow. There are the trendy rush down for, you know, staying in salubrious locations. But in, in the off, well, so-called off-season, it's a lovely area as well. Oh, yes, yeah. Uh, the the arrows for particularly mountain biking has get very big for mountain mountain biking these days, hmm. uh, and and just uh, bushwalking, fishing, trout fishing, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff so attracts different uh, people. They're not just skiers, that's for sure. I went down on a launch there one time, and they they got us to do a bit of trout fishing. Never done it before. It was it was incredibly relaxing. As it turned out, yeah. I, I love it. Rogan, you make the most of your environment and you manage to help keep the history that is part of it very much alive. I thank you very much for your time. Yeah, it's a pleasure, David. Thanks you very much. Any time at all. And that's Rogan Corbett, who is the president of the Cooma Car Club, who are running the event for the 75th anniversary of the first Land Rover to start work on the Snowy Mountains Hydroelectric Scheme. You're listening to Overdrive. We received a phone message yesterday on our new record and message system from our good friend Alan Zervis with his usual shy reticence. David, it's Alan from Gay Carboys. I thought I'd give you a quick call. I just got back in from Albury test driving Hyundai's brand new Ionic 6. You should have been there. It was absolutely fantastic. In fact... Quite simply, it is the best of its kind, and you missed some of the best driving roads in Australia. I'm so sad you weren't in this afternoon when I dropped in to show it to you, but, you know, hey-ho. Talk to you soon. The Hyundai Ioniq 6, as mentioned in the news, is the next model in the Hyundai all-electric range and shows the diversity of the fleet. The Ionic 5 looks like a modern hot hatch with distinctive edge lines, but this Ionic 6 is an elegant saloon with a very flowing design. I'll be having a drive this afternoon and we will be doing a full road test in the future. Now, if you would like to make a comment or a reflection on something we have covered in the program or your own motoring experiences, past or present, you also can leave a message by giving our special VoxPop number 028003 And as we have some overseas listeners on our podcast on Spotify or iTunes, all you have to do is to include the national code, which for Australia is plus 61. So that becomes plus 61 28003. 4295. We are especially looking for comments at this time as our home station, Northside Radio 99.3 FM, is celebrating its 40th anniversary year. 
Were you driving 40 years ago? And if so, in what sort of vehicle? Or were you too young to have a license, but your youthful passions focused on a certain car? Or perhaps your parents might have a memory and a short quip to tell. That number again is 02 4295 add plus 61 for an overseas call. Now, pithy comments, as in witty, short, laconic comments, are always the best. I hope I pronounce the word pithy clearly. This is Overdrive across Australia. Quite some years ago, I was test driving an MG RV8 and I happened to be near my son's school. So I thought I would give him a treat and pick him up in a very rare and special car. He had already left his class, so I made a big mistake as a parent. I wandered down to the bus bay. I compounded the problem by getting into the front of the bus to tell him I was there. This was a major error. Queuing for the school bus and being on the actual vehicle is the student's domain. An adult, or worse still a parent, should not venture into it. I knew I'd made a mistake because when we went back to the car park, he walked two metres in front of me with his head down, muttering. I hadn't had the chance to mention the car, but even when I showed him, he did not appear to be appeased. After we settled in, the only words he said was, however, can you drive past the bus bay? I was reminded of this story when I caught up with a long-time overdrive listener, Greg, who bought a classic MGR V8 not that long ago, but his passion, and I think in weaker moments he would call it his disease, goes back a long way. I suppose it started uh, back in the day with a 1969 MGB, which I bought as a young fella, and very proud to, to own it. But fast forward, having the uh, the RV8, it's a privilege. It's a gorgeous car, and certainly, as you alluded to, a, a rare bird. It was known as a bit of a mouthful, MGB GT, which was the body shape, V8, and I owned one of those as well in 1975, uh, MGB, GTV8. Look, I, I, I think it's probably something that a lot of us suffer from. It's, it's, an, it's, a, it's an addiction, isn't it? So what makes it so rare? It's the only factory convertible or roadster MGB V8 ever sold. They built about 2,000 of them. It certainly, it turns heads and, uh, and when I pull up, at a petrol station, for example, locally, a couple of people have come up and said, what's that? Which is great because people want to know about the car and uh, that's part of the enjoyment, being able to, to share it with other people. Apparently, there is an Australian connection. They were built here locally at uh, Zetland. They were CKD for a long long while, so a lot of local content. And actually, my first first B was one of those those vehicles. Obviously, it helps being a mechanic, but to say that, David, the RV8 has a has a great history. My particular car, I'm only the third owner, and it has about oh, 22,000 kilometres on it. Does it take much to keep it on the road? The issue, of course, with any, any vehicle that isn't driven much, it needs some attention. So I've, I've had to do a little bit of work to the uh, clutch hydraulics on it and I've changed the tyres because they were very old, replaced the 
shock absorbers because they, they weren't working and I've replaced them with all good, genuine parts, of course. And the car really is a pleasure to drive. It, it rides very nicely. You've got a Connolly leather interior. With the top down, the best soundtrack, I think, is the exhaust note. Does his vehicle get used often? It's, it's here in the garage at home and I took it out just a, a couple of weeks ago. I suppose I drive it every couple of weeks and take it for a good run and I like to actually take people for a drive who don't know what it is. There are a couple of guys that I work with and they don't they just don't know the car and to look at it they think oh my goodness and to be, again to be able to share it is uh, is brilliant whether it's going to a car and coffee morning which uh, my son uh, has taken it to on a couple of occasions and it's just brilliant because you're with enthusiasts and there aren't many of them around. Greg bought his recently, but when did he first see one? They actually had a press car here uh, at the Sydney International Motor Show, I guess back in, say, 93. And, of course, I thought it was fantastic. It was on a, a turntable there at the motor show and there were forms there to fill in to put your details down if you were interested in it. So, of course, I did. And they wrote back to me and said, thank you very much for your interest in the vehicle. However, it won't be being sold in Australia. That was disappointing, of course. Not that I could have afforded the car when it was new anyway, but that particular vehicle, David, wound up in New Zealand, which is where it is now. When I was testing the car many years ago, I drove it to Canberra in autumn, stopping in a park with a wonderful array of trees with their leaves showing colours of auburn, orange, yellow and brown. The colour of the car fitted into this environment. It was a deep green colour. The name of the colour is woodcot green, which might have been the same as the one that you drove. And most of the RV8s that are here in Australia have come via Japan because that was a huge market for uh, MG Rover. They, I think it was something like... 80% of the vehicles went from the UK to Japan. The way it works is uh, the taxes after about five years in Japan go through the roof for motor vehicles. And my particular car was bought by a doctor, Japanese doctor, and he had a colleague here in Australia, also a doctor, and he said, look, when you want to sell the car, I'll buy it. So he wound up with the car, the Australian doctor. However, for it to be homologated, all of the RV8s have side intrusion bars and a high mount brake light on them as well. So once that was all done, he then bought the vehicle. He owned it for a long time, maybe 10 10 years, and then I bought it from him. Where did you buy it? On car sales, and I was determined to uh, go and drive the car. But the, the thing that struck me about it David, it was, it was just so original and still to this day I haven't seen another RV8 with such low kilometres. The great thing about it is that I know the history, which is important to me, and to be able to have it here in the garage at home and take it out for a spin is brilliant. And that engine, it's the same engine that was in the 75 GT that I owned. It, it's ever-reliable and just just lovely to drive. What makes the car feel so special? The power to weight, David, is, is fantastic. 
It's a, a five-speed manual. Being a Japanese car, it also has air conditioning, which surprises a lot of people. And the thing about it is it, it is very easy to drive. You can put your foot down, it, it takes off, but if you just want to tool around town, of course you, you can. Worldwide, these cars are pretty rare. How many of them are in Australia now? I think there may be 200 from the last count. And most of them are that woodcot green colour because they have come in from Japan. And the uh, MG Car Club in the UK, there's a a V8 register. And of course, uh, these days, everything's online. So if you've you've got any questions, they can answer them. And and uh, there's just so much information available. Greg, it has been lovely to chat to you about your passion and a significant classic car. Thanks for your time. Yeah, lovely to speak with you. And that was Greg, long-time listener to the Overdrive program, who has taken his passion for classic MGs to their highest level till it all went belly up, and the badge name was ultimately sold to a Chinese company. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Rogan Corbett from Kuma, regular listener Greg, and Mark Wesley for their great help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Our website is in for service, but you can reach our social media posts on Instagram, search for Cars Transport Culture. And we have a recording answering service that you can leave a message on or a comment. Just phone 02800034295. If you're ringing from overseas, add plus 61. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.